Welcome to Primary Cast, your unofficial study group for the ASIM primary exam. I'm Charlotte Durand and I'm your host. In each episode, I'm joined by a special guest to cover some of the core content from this exam. You can find all the study notes online at asimprimarypodcast.com, where there are recordings and some of the uh, sketch notes that I took myself in the lead up to this exam. And while you're there, I'm always happy to hear your feedback via the contact page. Thank you so much to everyone who has supported the podcast through the Buy Me A Coffee icon on the website. I really appreciate it and it keeps the podcast online and open access for your colleagues. Today I'm joined for episode 27 uh, by Dr. Sarah Oldfield to discuss the general principles of pharmacology. We are going all the way back to the beginning. Sarah, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Charlotte. You're very welcome. Now, for those who don't know Sarah, she we met when you came back to Darwin to work after you'd been away for a little while. Yep. And you're currently working as a top-end fellow, yep. having passed your fellowship exams. Now, I've just learned that you've gone back and you're actually teaching the junior regs their primary study now is that right yeah that's right they love listening to the podcast so I thought I should make an appearance you've come full circle that's fantastic so getting back to the basics of pharmacology must be a real enjoyable time for you (laughs) yeah it's great now outside of work you enjoy hiking and adventuring you solo hiked the Larapinta Trail and I know you've also done the Overland yeah because we spoke about that last year yeah and your most recent adventure is driving across the Gibb Yes, yeah, I went across the Gibb this year. That was great. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, it very was amazing. N- very nice to get out of and see a little bit of the the top end area. Yeah. What was your favourite thing on that trip? Uh, all the hiking out to the waterholes. I think going out to Manning Gorge is probably my favourite. Oh, At the side of that one, there's a compulsory swim section across the river. Oh. Um, <laughs> and then you put all your gear in a little tub, float it across the river and then you dry off, put your shoes on, and do your 4K hike to the gorge. Oh, that sounds fantastic. That yeah, sounds it's great. wonderful. So anyone thinking about coming up to Darwin, uh, Sarah would be the one to speak to about <laughs> local adventures. Um, all right, so we're going to get into some of the content. We're going to do pharmacodynamics first and then go to pharmacokinetics. And we've hopefully covered pretty much everything that's been asked on previous papers, but there is a lot of stuff on this in the MCQ as well. So it's worth doing some MCQ practice questions about this topic as well. The first question is about agonists. In the context of drug receptor interactions, what is the difference between a full agonist and a partial agonist? High concentrations of full agonists can evoke a maximal response, whereas partial agonists cannot evoke a maximal response at any concentration. And under what circumstances can a partial agonist act as an antagonist? In the presence of a full agonist, a partial agonist can act as an antagonist. Buprenorphine is an example of this. In relation to drug responses, what is the EC50? The concentration at which an agonist produces half of its maximal effect. And what are spare receptors? The concentration of agonist producing the maximal response may not result in occupancy of a full complement of receptors. These receptors are said to be spare. And what are the two main mechanisms of receptors becoming spare? Temporal spares, where the receptor triggers a prolonged response after transient binding, and numerical spares, limited substrate with excess receptors. 
And what is the significance of spare receptors? Increasing the number of receptors coupled to an effector can allow a lower concentration of agonist to still produce a given proportion of maximal response. This means the tissue is more sensitive. Moving on to question two, we're going to talk about antagonists. What is an antagonist? Receptor antagonists bind to receptors, but they do not activate them. The primary action of antagonists is to prevent agonists from activating receptors. What is the difference between competitive and non-competitive antagonists? So with competitive, this competes with the agonist for the active site by binding at the same place as the agonist. Increasing the concentration of the agonist will then produce the given effect. Whereas a non-competitive or irreversible antagonist can bind in such a way that the receptor is no longer available for binding, either by modifying the active site or by binding with stronger bonds. In this case, the duration of effect depends on the turnover of receptor antagonist molecules, and the effect cannot be overcome by increasing concentrations of agonist. What type of antagonist is naloxone? Uh, It's a competitive antagonist. What other antagonists can you list? This includes flumazenil, propranolol, and monoamine oxidase inhibitors. What effect does a competitive antagonist have on the concentration effect curve? It shifts the curve to the right because higher concentrations of agonist can overcome a competitive antagonist. This means that the shape of the curve is the same, the height of the curve is the same, but the EC50 is increased. And I've also just for note, anyone who's listening, we I have included some diagrams that I've taken from Deranged Physiology, which is an awesome site that you probably already know about, um, and popped them in the study notes. So there is some diagrams uh, on the study notes, which are online. What effect does an irreversible antagonist have on the concentration effect curve? So it reduces the maximal effect, so the height of the curve is reduced, but the EC50 may be the same or may be different. Okay, so moving on to question three, we're going to talk about potency and efficacy. Sarah, can you please define potency? Potency refers to the affinity or attraction between an agonist and its receptor and the amount of drug required to produce an effect of a certain intensity. It refers to the concentration the EC50, or the dose, ED50, of a drug required to produce 50% of that drug's maximal effect. It's dependent on affinity of a drug for its receptor and the number of receptors available. And can you define efficacy? Efficacy is the maximal effect a drug agonist can produce, the Emax, when all receptors are occupied, irrespective of the concentration or dose required to produce that response. It's determined by the drug's mode of interactions with receptors or by characteristics of the receptor effector system involved. And can you please show the difference between efficacy and potency by drawing dose-response curves? Okay, so these are going to be available online again on the deranged physiology site. So the graph has the dose on the x-axis and the response on the y-axis. The curves are sigmoid or S-shaped. A curve that is further to the left 
will have greater potency because less of the drug is required for the effect. A curve that is tallest or has the greatest Y value has a greater efficacy because the Y axis measures the response regardless of dose required to get there. Great, thank you. Can you please compare the potency of morphine and fentanyl? Fentanyl is 100 times more potent than morphine. 0.1 milligram of fentanyl is equivalent to 10 milligrams of morphine. And what are the factors which affect a drug's efficacy? The affinity of the receptor for the drug, drug receptor interaction, route of administration, absorption, distribution through the body, and the clearance of the drug from the blood or site of action. Question four, we're focusing on secondary messengers. In reference to drug action, what is a second messenger? A second messenger is a method of transmembrane signaling. It's an intracellular substance which has its concentration altered by a process that is initiated by an extracellular ligand. The second messenger then acts to facilitate an intracellular process. What are the steps in action of a drug via a second messenger? So it begins when the drug binds to a receptor on the extracellular side of the plasma membrane. This triggers the activation of a G protein on the cytoplasmic side. The activated G protein changes an enzyme ion channel, and this changes the concentration of intracellular second messengers, which mediates the response. Can you give an example of a second messenger and the type of response it produces? Uh, Yep, so cyclic AMP is one of the main ones, which is activated via adenylate cyclase, causes mobilisation of fat and carbohydrates, conservation of water by the kidney, increased rate and contractility of the heart, calcium regulation, adrenal hormone regulation, and relaxation of smooth muscle. There are other secondary messengers, which include calcium and, I can never say this, phos phosphoinosides, which I had to look this up, was the name of a family of acidic phospholipids in cell membranes, and cyclic GMP, which is the other one that's easier to say, which acts via transmembrane granulocyclase. Can you give an example of a drug that acts via this second messenger system? Uh, Beta agonists do. They act via GS proteins attached to the beta adrenoreceptors and cause increase in intracellular cyclic AMP. Other examples include glucagon, thyrotropin, histamine, serotonin, acetylcholine, and opioids. So we're moving on to talk about pharmacokinetics now, and we're going to start with absorption. What variables influence the extent and rate at which a drug is absorbed? It's influenced by the route of administration, the nature of the absorbing surface, including the cell membrane, for example, a single epithelial layer in the GIT versus layer of skin cells and the surface area of absorption in the stomach, small intestine, etc. Blood flow to the area of absorption, drug solubility, i.e. lipid solubility, and drug formulation, i.e. the presence of an enteric coating. And can you explain why aspirin absorption is enhanced by the low pH in the stomach? So aspirin is an acidic drug with a low pKa, which means it's relatively unionized in the stomach and therefore more soluble, so it's absorbed more readily here. And how does the ionization of a drug affect its solubility? Drugs exist as weak acids or weak bases, and in the body they are either ionized or unionized. 
Ionized are water soluble and unionized are more lipid soluble. What are some of the disadvantages of rectal drug administration? Erratic absorption due to contents in the rectum, 50% first pass metabolism, local irritation, uncertainty of drug retention, and I'd have to say patient preference. (laughs) That's an important one to add. (laughs) Thank you. Moving on to question six and bioavailability. What is bioavailability? Uh, It is the fraction of unchanged drug reaching the systemic circulation following administration by any route. What factors affect bioavailability? The extent of absorption, which is affected by drug properties, reverse transporters and gut wall metabolism. First pass metabolism, where drug can be removed by the liver. The rate of absorption, which is determined by the site of administration and the drug formulation. What is first pass metabolism? After the absorption of orally ingested drug, the portal blood delivers the drug to the liver. It can be metabolized in the liver, in the gut, and in the portal system before reaching the systemic circulation. And this reduces the bioavailability of the drug. And I should say that it doesn't necessarily have to be just an orally ingested drug that I think the first pass metabolism also affects the rectally administered drugs. Can you increase the drug's bioavailability? Can we give me an example, please? So you can change the route of administration. So give the medication intravenously, intramuscularly, subcut or sublingual, uh, inhalational or transdermal. All of these can avoid the first pass metabolism. Oh yeah, there we are. PR administration can still have 50% first pass metabolism. Another way to do this is change the drug's properties, so increase absorption by making it more hydrophilic or lipophilic or using a prodrug, and increasing the dose can also uh, help increase bioavailability. What is the bioavailability of ibuprofen? Uh, It is high. Ibuprofen is a weak organic acid. It is well-absorbed orally and has minimal first-pass metabolism. For this question, you didn't need to give anything apart from, say, it is high. And usually the hint is if we give things orally all the time, then generally the bioavailability could be considered to be relatively high. Question seven is about distribution. Can you please define the volume of distribution of a drug? It's defined as the volume in which the amount of drug in the body would need to be uniformly distributed to produce the observed concentration in blood, plasma or water. And what factors affect the volume of distribution? So the drug properties such as lipid solubility, pKa, pH, protein binding, and then patient factors such as age, sex, disease state, body composition and blood flow. How is it possible for a drug to have a volume of distribution of 2,500 litres in an adult? So there's a higher concentration in the extravascular tissues than in the blood. For example, an example being lipid-soluble medications that are not homogeneously distributed. Can you give some examples of drugs with high and low volumes of distribution? Drugs with high volumes of distribution include morphine, digoxin, clonidine, beta blockers and diazepam. Drugs with low volumes of distribution include aspirin, frizamide, most antibiotics and warfarin. And what is the relevance of a volume of distribution in an overdose? 
Drugs with a high volume of distribution cannot be dialyzed off because most has left the circulation. Those with a low volume of distribution, for example lithium, can be. Question 8 is focusing on metabolism and biotransformation. What factors are responsible for differences in drug metabolism between individuals? These include uh, genetic differences, so enzyme deficiencies or supermetabolizers, diet and environmental factors such as exposure to enzyme inducers, difference in age or sex, men have an increased metabolic rate and extremes of age have decreased enzyme activity, drug interactions, which again works through enzyme induction or inhibition, and certain disease states which affect liver function or thyroid state. What is drug biotransformation? It's the process of drug metabolism which allows drugs to become inactive or increases excretion by making them more hydrophilic or by metabolizing them to a less active agent. What are the main sites of biotransformation? These include the liver, the gastrointestinal system, the skin and the kidneys. What is the role of cytochrome P450 enzymes? These are part of the biotransformation system to detoxify drugs and substrates. They act by oxidation, which is a phase one reaction, and make substances easier to conjugate. These are located on the smooth endoplasmic reticulum. Describe phase one and phase two reactions. Phase one relates to the unmasking of the functional group to become a more polar metabolite. These include oxidation, deamination, hydrolysis, or reductions. Phase two involves conjugation with an endogenous substrate to become highly polar. Important to note that phase one and phase two can occur alone. They can occur sequentially or simultaneously, and the metabolites can be more active or more toxic than the parent drug. How is succinmethonium metabolized? So this is a rapid phase one hydrolysis by butyryl cholinesterase and pseudocholinesterase in the liver and in the plasma. Why might a patient have a prolonged paralysis following succinmethonium use? Patients who have a genetic deficiency in butyryl cholinesterase have a slower metabolism, and so the drug can act for a prolonged period of time. What is meant by the term enzyme induction? Drugs can cause an increased rate of synthesis or decreased rate of degradation of some enzymes, leading to accelerated substrate metabolism. This can lead to decreased pharmacological action of the co-administered drug. Okay, question nine, we're going to talk about clearance. What is drug clearance? Measurement of the availability of the body to eliminate a drug. Rate of elimination in relation to the concentration of the drug or volume of plasma cleared of the drug per unit time. Elimination and clearance can be referred to as the same thing, but there are different questions in the past papers for these topics. Elimination of a drug is used to describe the irreversible removal of the drug from the body, and clearance is defined as the above, being the volume of fluid cleared of drug per unit time. It's just one of those really fun semantic mm, exam things. things about the exam, uh, which can cause a lot of stress if you can't find the difference between those. So that's how we've defined them. And that um, caveat or definition will be in the notes as well. What factors affect clearance? So concentration, which depends on the dose and bioavailability, 
and elimination, which depends on specific organ function, blood flow, and protein binding. Major sites of elimination are the kidneys and liver, therefore factors that affect these organs' function and blood flow will have the most effect. And what is the difference between capacity-limited and flow-dependent drug elimination? So capacity-limited elimination is saturable, this is zero-order elimination, where clearance varies depending on the drug concentration, for example, aspirin, phenytoin, alcohol. Flow-dependent is not saturable, this is first-order elimination. Most of the drug is cleared by the first pass of blood through an organ, so elimination depends on the rate of drug delivery to the organ and thus on blood flow. Plasma protein may also have a small role. Drugs that have flow-dependent elimination include amitriptyline, libidolol, morphine, verapamil and lignocaine. What factors affect renal clearance? Renal function, renal blood flow and plasma protein binding. And what are some drugs that are predominantly cleared by the kidneys? Dentamycin, which is the main one to mention, vancomycin, digoxin and ampicillin. And most of you will be familiar with doing renal adjusted dosing for those medications. Mm, That's a really good point is that a lot of these pharmacology questions, as we've said in previous episodes, it can be stressful to try and remember lists of drugs for different things. If you get stuck answering the questions, just think about what you do in clinical practice, because that can give you a really good, uh, I guess, uh, touchstone to think about what drugs might be used in that situation. So exactly as we've just said, drugs cleared by the kidneys are the ones that we need to think of to adjust in patients who have decreased renal function. So don't forget that this exam can sometimes feel like a lot of different just lists of facts, but it is related to what you're doing day to day. So keep bringing that back into it. So final question 10, focused on elimination. Define elimination half-life. Elimination half-life is the time taken to change the amount of drug in the body by half during elimination. Uh, So the equation is 0.7 times the volume of distribution over the clearance. How does knowing a drug's half-life help us clinically? This aids in dosing regimen planning, it identifies timelines in overdose and can help establish time to steady state after a dose change. What disease states can affect the elimination half-life? These include liver, renal and cardiac disease. What is first order elimination kinetics? So this is similar to one of our previous questions but is worth going over again because they'll ask it in different ways. So first order elimination kinetics is where a constant fraction or percentage of the drug is eliminated per unit time. The rate of elimination is proportional to the amount of drug in the body. The half-life remains constant. Most drugs are eliminated this way. How does this differ to zero-order kinetics? With the zero-order, a constant amount of drug is eliminated per unit time. The rate of elimination is constant and is independent of drug concentration. In an overdose, the half-life will be prolonged, and the examples that we use for this are ethanol, alcohol, phenytoin, and salicylates. So that brings us to the end of the general principles of pharmacology. Uh, Thank you very much for helping me go through that, and it was a bit of a blast from the past of all the things we've forgotten along the way. Absolutely. (laughs) 
So don't fear, you might know this very well now, uh, but give it a few years and it will all be gone again. <laughs> um, as we finish up, I usually like to ask people if they have any particular advice or words of wisdom uh, for those who are listening to the podcast who are preparing for their exam. Uh, I know it's been a little while since you've sat your primaries, but have you got any any advice for anyone who's coming up to it soon? I think the main thing is to do lots of MCQs and then if you're not getting them right, do a bit of in-depth, more in-depth reading so that you understand the concepts between the MCQs because there are concepts that come up time and time again in the MCQs and once you understand the concepts behind them, it's much easier to answer the MCQs. Mm. The second thing I'd say is I think the exams are hard and you sacrifice a lot of your time outside of work and your social life during this time preparing for the exams. So I think it's really important to give yourself a reward and something to look through, look forward to after the exam to say, look, this has been really tough, but I'm going to get to the end. I'm going to sit the exam and then I've got this great thing to look forward to, whatever that is for you, mm. you know. I would endorse hiking or a nice little trip somewhere, but, you know, whatever it is for you, I think definitely be kind to yourself because you've worked hard to sit this exam. That's incredible advice. I can't remember if I planned anything good for myself or what I did. I think I definitely went out the day after I sat the Viva mm, yeah. and bought like five books and just was like, I'm going to read something that's not a textbook. And I just went and just enjoyed, like, I mean, everyone who's listened to this podcast already knows that, like, we're all in, like, good company of nerds. But mm. I just went and bought some great books and just read. So if you want to go hiking, if you want to go overseas, <laughs> if you just want to read a good novel. <laughs> I went and bought a red leather jacket from Gorman. Oh, my God, that's amazing. <laughs> that was my that. congratulations on sitting your exams oh, present to myself. That. It was that sounds great. really fun. I still, you know, wear it and feel that joy again of having sat the exams. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> yes, like a statement piece. Yeah. I love it. Fantastic. All right. Um, you can find all the notes online, asymprimarypodcast.com. I will try and include all of the graphs and some of my scribbles about this topic up there. And um, yeah, that is it. Thank you for joining us for another episode, Sarah. Thank you very much for taking us through that. Thanks, Charlotte. Oh, wait. You're asking it's me? You. I'm asking you. Yeah, thank you. Good. I'm glad someone's paying attention. That was on <laughs> the answer. <laughs> I've been doing this content since 2019 and it's just, it's been a long time. I don't remember any of it. I don't need that visual. <laughs> I don't need that.